We're in Matthew chapter number 16 today. Matthew chapter number 16. And we're in the second half of this chapter. We'll be wrapping it up here this morning. We'll begin in verse number 13 here in just a moment. Um, Blake and Jamie are smiling at me. Um, because So uh, Cindy and I lead our young adults in our college uh, group. We, we gather together for Bible study on Sunday nights. And um, a few weeks ago, we um, told them how we remember the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. If you remember last week, chapter 16, verse number one, um, talks about the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so they were very upset with me that I didn't share um, the difference between these two uh, with our church. And so I'm going to explain it really quickly, and then we're going to jump into where we're supposed to be today, okay? You guys happy now? All right. Um, so, and uh, the Pharisees, as we look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Pharisees are um, very conservative, very um, ritualistic. They follow the law to the letter and then some. Um, and so those are the Pharisees. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. And that is why they're sad, you see. That's it. That's it. <laughs> Happy now? All right, they were very disappointed. They made sure that they let me know about it um, last Sunday night. They were very adamant that I had to say something about it. So there I did it. As we jump into Matthew 16, starting in verse number 13, um, this, is a very, um, this is a very serious passage in a lot of ways. There are a lot of things that are taking place, but I believe these, um, what we're going to look at, three paragraphs tied together in a way that's essential that we understand them all as a whole. So I want to read through verse 20 together. I want to pray, and then I just want to jump into the text today. Verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man, being Jesus, is. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Father, we are grateful just for the opportunity to be able to open up your words together this morning. I pray that as we read it, as we study it, that you would help us to see both who Jesus is, being your son, being the Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would help our faith in you and our faith in Christ to increase today. Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts, even as we look at this uh, passage. There are some difficult statements in this text that we're going to study today, but I pray that you would help us to take and to digest and apply these things to our lives. And then as we walk out of here in just a few minutes, that we would leave a little bit more like your son, Jesus. And we ask it all in his name. Amen. I think all of us would agree that loss is one of the most difficult emotions that human beings face. 
Um, and I'm not talking about merely like misplacing our keys or our wallets or whatever, although that happens sometimes and it's inconvenient. Uh, I'm talking about something that is irreplaceable, saying goodbye to someone and it's the, the permanence of this. You see, loss often causes us to realize that our life is outside of our control. Um, sometimes when we lose someone or something that is dear to us, uh, we want to reenact um, back to the future and jump in our DeLorean, put the pedal to the metal, 88 miles an hour, and we want to go back in time to a time before all of that took place. But it's not so easy to actually rewind real life. And so it dawns on us, and this is why I believe loss is so difficult to cope with. It dawns on us that it's outside of our control and that our life is totally different than it was just moments before. And I want you to, to follow me here. While loss is always hard, it is often necessary. While loss is always hard, it is often necessary. Uh, let me, and this, this seems, this probably seems counterintuitive to you. And, and it, as I was studying this text, I was wrestling with just this concept of loss. And we're going to see it in the text here in just a moment. Um, I, I believe that Matthew was kind of prepping us for this last paragraph with the text that we just read and then the paragraph following. And as we kind of wrestle with this concept of loss, I think it's important for us to understand that this is a part of life. Whether you're going to follow Jesus or not, loss is going to be a part of our lives. And that's not always a bad thing. I want you to take a second, think back to your childhood. How many of you can remember running around barefoot in the backyard? You can remember playing games maybe with brothers or sisters, um, climbing a tree. You can remember drinking uh, water from the garden hose. You can remember all of these summertime activities. And what is uh, better than the freedom of childhood? I mean, can you remember those days? Um, your kids now, they come to you and they come to you with their problems and their problems are like, I can't get my shoes on or whatever it might be. And you just have to hug them and say, man, I wish that the problems that I dealt with were the problems you're dealing with. We remember just that carefree spirit that exists in childhood. The world is big and adventures await and there is so much fun to be had. And yet today, many of us in this room are parents and grandparents. Uh, how many of you parent grandparents? Most of us in here are a parent or a grandparent. And the carefree liberties of childhood are incompatible with parenthood. We understand that? Automatically, we do not have the luxury of behaving like a child anymore. We're forced into maturity. And in the season between childhood and where you are now, many of you have buried mothers, fathers, siblings, and even children. But we have to realize that it's impossible to hold on to what was while embracing the things that will be. As we get into this text, we have to understand this principle, and I want you to understand it very clearly. Our response to loss hinges on what we believe about Jesus. You catch that with me? The way that you will respond to loss in your life is directly related with what you believe about 
Jesus. One pastor, A.W. Tozer, he said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What a powerful statement. If you were to say, what is the most important thing about you or about me? Is that the first thing that would come into our mind? But that's what Tozer believed. And I believe that he was onto something when he said this. And so for that reason, I think it's no wonder that Jesus here in verse 13 begins to ask people, who does everyone say that I am? And watch what he says here. He says, who do people at the end of verse 13 say that the son of man, the son of man being a title that Jesus uses to refer to himself. Who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say he's John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And so um, all of this, as they're looking at Jesus, let's remember there are crowds that are following after him. He's fed uh, thousands of people twice that we know of. And so there are these crowds of people following Jesus. And so Jesus calls the 12, those who are close to him, and says, who are all of these people saying that I am? Who do all of these people think that I am? And they give these answers. And these answers, John the Baptist, Elijah. And those are not bad answers, I guess. They're not the right answer. But they, these, are the, these are the things that we're hearing, they tell Jesus. These are the things that other people are saying that you are. Many believed that he was a teacher or a prophet. Um, but let me kind of pose this question to you. What would you sacrifice for a teacher or for a prophet? What would you be willing to endure for a teacher or a prophet? When loss comes into your life, is that teacher, that prophet, are, are they able to make up for that? Is that someone that you're willing to commit your life to? The answer, probably not. But what Jesus was about to ask of his followers was a price that went way beyond what people would do for a, uh, just a teacher. Watch what happens next. Jesus, as he uh, continues, he says, but who do you say that I am? He's talking to the 12. He says, listen, you guys have followed me. Everyone else says that I'm a teacher or a prophet. Who do you say that I am? And they say what? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That was Peter's response. Peter jumps up and he, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then watch what Jesus says in response to this. Because there are those that may claim that Scripture does not teach that Jesus is the Son of God, but Jesus says this, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so as we continue to follow what's happening here in this passage, we need to understand that our knowledge of Jesus is a gift from God. Our knowledge of Jesus is a gift from God. You see, we are not followers of Jesus just because of, because of our intelligence or because we are good enough to comprehend the gospel. The fact that you and I have understanding of God in the first place is a gift from God. Jesus right here speaks and he says, listen, flesh and blood, your intellect, another human being, what you've been taught as a child, that's not what revealed this to you. You know what revealed this to you? The Father who is in heaven. That is who revealed this to you. And so we see that our knowledge of Jesus is a gift from God. You see, in reality, uh, we are not discerning enough or good enough for the gospel. In reality, if we want to come to Jesus Christ, we have to be nothing enough for the gospel. 
We have to be empty enough for the good news of Jesus Christ. Which means all of the things that we like to think we are, we have to lay aside and we have to reject. You see, your intellect did not bring you to Jesus. The persuasion of a pastor, whether myself or predecessors, doesn't matter, did not bring you to Jesus. These may have been tools that were used. Um, but when my alternator died in my Jeep a couple of weeks ago, I didn't say thank you to the tools that were used to repair it. I thanked the mechanic who got under there, spent the time, used his knowledge, used the tools to make that repair happen. And so we see that Jesus and that the Father is the one who's actually doing this work to reveal to us who the Son is. And so our faith is initiated by God. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that by grace are you saved through faith. But that's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so we see that all of this that takes place is a gift from God as it works itself out in our hearts. Watch as he continues here. Look at this. He says, uh, verse number 18, I will tell you, you are Peter. On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's an interesting phrase, interesting statement right there. That's pretty uh, well known by people who study the Bible consistently. It says, I tell you, you are Peter. You know, what's interesting about that is the name Peter actually means rock. Um, and there's some debate about what he's trying to say, what he's trying to communicate here. But what he says, he says, you are Peter. So there's a play on words that's taking place here. He says, you're Peter. On this rock, I will build my church. And the debate comes, is it this rock, Peter? Is it this rock, Jesus? Um, we see later in the New Testament that Jesus is the one who builds his church. We see the foundation of the apostles. But at the end of the day, the chief cornerstone is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he is the head of that foundation. He is the head of which we are built. And so as Jesus is speaking to Peter, he is saying, listen, I'm going to build my church. And watch what he says. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I want you to just think about that phrase for a minute. Because uh, Jesus, when he speaks, every time he speaks, um, very intentional. He doesn't say things by mistake. You and I, we say stuff by mistake all the time right? Jesus did not. So as he speaks, he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, what, uh, it, what's a gate used for? To keep something out, right? So is the gate uh, an offensive tool or a defensive tool? It's defensive, right? Gates don't move unless they like open, sway, but they're not taking ground with a gate, and so Jesus right here, as he's speaking, he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Well, if they are gates that the church is going up against, what does that imply about the church? Is the church standing still? If you're standing still, you have no conflict with the gate, right? You don't care what a gate is doing. But what he's saying is that as we are moving forward, the gates of hell cannot stand against the church that I am building. And so he immediately is teaching us, this is the first time in the book of Matthew, um, that this word church is utilized very clearly as he's speaking of this church that he is founding, this called out assembly of believers. And what he says is that the gates of hell, as hell tries to protect its assets, the church is going to march in. The church will overcome. 
It cannot be overcome by these gates. And not only that, watch what he says. He says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And so as he speaks, you know what he's speaking? I'm going to just kind of boil this all down to. This truth that Peter understands who Jesus is as the Son of God is a truth for all of us to hang on to, and not only to hang on to, but take into the world. You see, as we are given the keys of the kingdom, we are called to bind and to loose. How do we do that? Do you and I have the power to bind and loose the hearts of men and the hearts of women? No, absolutely not. But you know what we do have is we do have the gospel of Jesus Christ that sets men free. And so the tool that we've been given is this gospel of Jesus Christ to go and to share this good news. And even as we go out and take this good news into our community, oftentimes it can be intimidating. Oftentimes when we go and we want to share the gospel with a lost neighbor, our heart rate picks up a little bit. Um, Our palms start to sweat. When we go to that loved one that we care about and we think about having this conversation and we're unsure of the response that they're going to give to us, it can make us feel anxious inside. And that's a natural response, but that doesn't mean that we give into those fears. It means that the Holy Spirit of God ought to empower us as we go forward because we have to remember the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. The gates of hell cannot. The enemy doesn't have any power here. And so what we see is that this church is continuing to move forward and this church is continuing to spread the good news of the gospel. But that means that, uh, watch what, watch what he says here. Cause, uh, verse number 20, we're going to kind of come back to this in a minute. After he says all of these things, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Fascinating, isn't it? Right after he says, it's yours to loose and it's yours to bind and the gates of hell will not prevail. Oh, by the way, don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ. It's a little strange, isn't it? This is a paradox. It's called the messianic secret. The messianic secret. Jesus tells these disciples and there are different ideas and different theories about why Jesus told his disciples this. Um, Maybe Jesus just knew that if he told his disciples to share it, they wouldn't. But if he said it's a secret, they would. I don't know. Maybe you know people like that. Um, And so Jesus, for whatever reason, tells his disciples, hey, don't tell anyone this yet. From that time, Jesus, verse 21, began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day, be raised. Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Um, When we choose to trust ourselves over what God is calling us to do or uh, telling us to do, we can often become good hearted hindrances to the work that God is trying to accomplish. What's going on here? Jesus gets up and he says, hey guys, from that time he's beginning to show them and tell them. And so we don't know how many times he had this conversation. We don't know how often Jesus said, hey, listen guys, um, I'm going to suffer. We're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. 
They're going to take me. They're going to kill me. And then I'm going to raise again. We don't know how many times, but he began to show this, reveal this to his disciples. As he's revealing this to his disciples, um, Peter, the same Peter who just a few minutes ago had jumped up and said, you're the Christ, the son of God. Peter, verse 22, Peter took him aside. He says, Jesus, get over here. He began to rebuke him. Can you imagine uh, the gall of Peter? Jesus, you don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Jesus, you're the Christ, the son of God, but you're wrong here. He pulls him to the side. He begins to rebuke him and he says, what? Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Lord, that's not going to happen. He begins to teach his disciples what's going to take place, and and Jesus doesn't like it. I'm sorry, Peter doesn't like it. I mean, let's just be honest here. If you're watching Jesus and you're following all these things, and Jesus began to tell you that he was going to go and be killed, would you like it? Would you be excited about that? Yay, kingdom. Yay, martyrdom. Persecution. Yay. No. No, that's ridiculous. And so Peter, he gets up and listen, he's excited about the kingdom. And Messiah is here, Emmanuel, the God with us. Um, And Jesus says, hey, listen, guys, the kingdom of God is here and we've been teaching and crowds have been coming and it's been so exciting. Let me tell you what's going on next. Next, we're going to go up to Jerusalem, just like we do every year for the Passover. And we're going to go up to celebrate. Um, But then uh, I'm going to be betrayed. Uh, I'm going to be arrested, beaten, crucified. You guys are going to be scattered after you deny me, which is going to get to later. Um, That's what we're excited about, right? It's like the Super Bowl. No. They look around and they say, that's... Peter even has the, has the, the spine to go, Jesus, Jesus, come here. What are you talking about? What is wrong with you? They begin to, Peter begins to condemn Jesus for the things that he is saying. So Peter argues. He gets up and he says this. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. I mean, that's probably what's all going on in our hearts and minds if we're in Peter's stead. If we're standing in his shoes, we're saying, no, 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 no. That's sad. No, no, no. That's not going to happen. That's never going to happen. And how does Jesus respond? How does Jesus respond to this good-hearted hindrance? He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Just put yourself there for a moment. As Jesus looks at you and says, get behind me, Satan. What's he saying to Peter? Is he saying, Peter, you are literally the embodiment of Satan? No, he's saying Satan is using you. Satan is using you for his purposes. He has gotten inside of your heart and he has turned it away from spiritual things. And now you're so focused on the carnal that you don't understand what God is trying to do. Just a minute ago, Peter, you understood that I am the Christ, the son of God. I began to tell you what's coming next. And now you don't believe it. Get behind me, Satan, because that's not how things are going to work. God has this plan and he has put us on it. But Peter didn't want that plan to include loss. 
Peter wanted that plan to be one where the kingdom is built. Everything is up and to the right. Everything is excellent. It's glorious. Oh, can you believe what's taking place? Never a hurdle, never a hindrance. Oh, Jesus, you can make this happen. But that's not how life works. That's not how life works. But instead, Jesus' followers will experience loss. Jesus' followers will experience loss. Notice that uh, I'm not saying would experience loss, not just a past tense thing. Jesus' followers will experience loss. It's going to happen. Watch what happens in this final paragraph of the chapter. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I will say to you, I say to you there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And so what does he say at the very beginning of this? He told, tells his disciples, these are those followers who were close after him, those who interacted with him on a daily basis. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, let's understand what he means when he says take up his cross. You and I, we look at a cross today, and we have crosses that are symbols that are used all across our uh, community. We have a cross standing over here. Many of you probably have jewelry with a cross on it. And there's nothing wrong with that, because today we look at the cross as a symbol of Christ's victory over sin and the gospel of Jesus Christ. But as Jesus is saying these words, has Jesus been crucified yet? What's the context of the cross? Has the cross been something that he has endured? The cross is an instrument of torture. The cross is an instrument of death. The cross is something whereby criminals would be executed in the least humane way possible. Uh, think of it this way for us today. Uh, imagine going around and taking up and carrying um, a, a gallows or a guillotine. Or an electric chair. Does anyone have any of those on a necklace? All right. In this crowd, probably not. That's not how we look at those. We said that would be grotesque. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, take up your cross, follow after me. Take up the instrument of death and humiliation and degradation and carry this after me. You know what the cross is a symbol of? The cross is a symbol of loss. If anything, the gallows, the guillotine, the electric chair are more humane than the cross, if we're really being honest. And as we look at this text, understand this, uh, that if you want to run from loss, you will experience it. Because what does he say? If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. What's the opposite of that? You want to save your life, verse 25? Whoever would save his life... We'll save it, right? Whoever will save his life will lose it. And watch, but whoever loses his life for my sake, not just throws it away recklessly, but for my sake, will find it. 
The old preacher, Adrian Rogers, he would say it this way. When I was a child, we used to play a little game called Finders Keepers, Losers Weepers. Anyone ever, ha, ah, Finders Keepers, Losers Weepers, that's mine now, right? Um, in, our, in Jesus' economy, Jesus is saying, losers, finders, keepers, weepers. You follow that? <laughs> what is he doing? He's taking this. He's like, no, 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 no. That's not how that works. In fact, here, Jesus is almost speaking uh, of our life uh, as if we were holding on to sand. Uh, you go to the beach. How many of you like the beach? You just enjoy the beach. Um, I, I'm not a beach person. Um, so I'm just going to confess. All right. But if you go to the sand, if you go to the beach and you go and you want to get as much sand as possible, how do you grab that sand? Do you put your hand in the dirt and just grab it as tight as you can because you want to keep every single grain? How does that work for you? How's that going? I mean, you go in, you grab a handful, and you come over to where you want to put it, and you let it go, and how much comes out? Like nothing. Whatever was like stuck to the sweat on your palms. That's it. You want to carry sand, what do you do? You scoop it up. You hold it very loosely, don't you? You say, I'm going to take this bowl, and I'm going to carry this, and I'm going to set it down right here. You see, the same thing is often true of our life. You want to lose the things that you have. You want to lose uh, your life. I'm not talking about just death. I'm talking about, listen, the kingdom of God is God's economy. You want to be first? Well, it doesn't happen by going around and saying, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine. That's not how things work. But when we hold loosely, Jesus Christ says, hey, take up your cross, follow after me. Be willing to lose your life for my sake. That's how you gain it. That's how you actually are able to have any kind of success, any kind of gain in God's economy. And so as we are looking at this, we have to remember that Jesus here, he's saying loss is going to come and it's okay. Loss is going to come and it's okay. Great German theologian, early 20th century, Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. We like the message of the cross that says, I'll give you life and I'll give you abundant life. And are those things true? Yes. But you know where that abundant life begins? With the death of you and me. That's where abundant life starts. It starts when we lay aside our preferences, our wants, our desires, our plans for our life and say, God, this is yours. You are in control. And we abandon those things. We lose and we're found. But at the same time, here's what's so beautifully true about this. There isn't a parent in this room that would exchange their child for another go at their own childhood. There's not one. There's not one that would say, I would give up on being a parent so that I can be a kid again. We might feel like it some days, but we're not making that decision. Because we understand that the things that we have left behind are dwarfed by the things that we found in its place. The same is true of following Jesus. The things that you will lose in this life following Jesus, dwarfed by the rewards, the treasures, the riches in glory, the, the true nature of experiencing God in Christ, it pales in comparison. Yet, many of us have dysfunctional priorities. Many of us, if not all of us. The comfort is now the new religion. We want a gospel. We want a movement. We want a church that don't tell me what's wrong. 
Don't confront. Mind your own business. Don't, don't push into those things. Don't step on toes. Don't, don't hurt feelings. Don't be willing to. Uh, but that's a dysfunctional priority. We have to understand that as much as we like air conditioning and padded chairs, as much as we like always being told that we're good and it's okay and being patted on the back, comfort is not compatible with Christianity. Comfort is not compatible with Christianity. Because what's Christianity? Christianity is the cross. Cross, comfort, are those two words you'd put in the same sentence? No. Comfort is not compatible with Christianity. Christianity without the cross, it's anything but Christian. Anything but Christian. And you see, God uses our discomfort to accomplish what comfort never could. God uses our discomfort to accomplish what comfort never could. You see, we want to take the cross and we want to pat it and polish it and make it look all nice and neat. And we want to take it and we want to brush it up. Uh, we want to say, let's give me the gospel, the good news of Jesus, but let's turn down the gore and the things that it required of Jesus. And then let's kind of ignore the things that it requires of me too. give me life, but don't let me experience loss. Well, those two things are incompatible. They cannot exist. But here is the truth, and here is the good news of the gospel of Jesus. When we discover the value of Christ, no price, no loss is too great. When we discover the value of Christ, no loss is too great. Because at the end of the day, what happens is as we look at Christ, we understand he is, we understand that he is worth anything that we could possibly lose in gaining him. There's no cost that's too high. Uh, one preacher said it this way, uh, as he told a story of a man who was told to give everything and to sell everything. Uh, he told, he looked at Jesus and he says, look, Mr. Jesus, you can't be serious. Sell everything. What do you want us to do? Divest ourselves of house and car and bank account? Do we turn our children out into the streets to beg for their breakfast? Maybe your words cut to the heart of the rich young ruler, but he was a special case. Times have changed. Here in America, we take pride in a high standard of living. If we follow you, Mr. Jesus, what happens to our economy, our advertising industry, our stock market, sell everything? Mr. Jesus, you've got to be kidding. Was Jesus serious? Does the gospel really mean loss? Does following Jesus really mean a willingness to give up everything that we have worked so hard for, everything that we have earned, everything that we deserve, to put it all on the line? Is that what the gospel is? Is that what the gospel means? But here, I want you to clearly understand this. We can afford to lose when we are found in Christ. We can afford to lose when we are found in Christ. What would a man give in exchange for his soul? What would someone give in exchange for the part of them that exists for eternity? What would someone give to, and be willing to suffer and be willing to be separated from God? What thing that we possess is worth more than that? You see, when we are found in Christ, we experience forgiveness of sins. Even as Jesus went to the cross, he didn't go to the cross because he was guilty. He went to the cross because we are guilty. And as he went to that cross, he went to that cross to save us from our sin. Not just from, not from our neighbor's sin, not from his sin for sure, from our sin. 
He gives us eternal and abundant life. But what if the eternal and abundant life that Jesus offers us is not the eternal and abundant life that you and I have in our minds? What if our ideal of abundant life looks different than Jesus? Which one's right? Which one are we pursuing? Which one are we chasing after? Which one are we hungry for? You see, as we follow after Christ, he gives us rearranged desires. He takes that old heart of ours that wants and wants and wants and is never filled like a fire that has never had enough. And he, he takes that and he sets us aside. He rearranges our desires to where he is the thing that we want. But here's the good news of that. Is that he promises us that he's the water of life in John chapter number four. And when we go to the water of life, we'll never thirst again. And yet here we are, we're running around trying to drink from mud puddles and figure out why we're still thirsty. Jesus says, come to me. I'm the water of life. Not some thing, not some gift, not some achievement. I am the water of life. You see, as we give up and lose the things that we want, we're given a new king in Jesus. We're given a new identity. We are a child of God. We are wrapped up in him, a friend of God, a new creation, a saint, whereas we were a sinner. And we're given a new mission to take this gospel to those who have never heard it before. So this week, we're going to go out into workplaces. We're going to go into our neighborhoods, into our communities. We're going to spend time with men and women who maybe they believe in some form of Jesus, but one that doesn't match the Bible. Maybe they don't believe in him at all. The fact is, is that God has placed you where he has you on purpose. But Nate, man, it's so inconvenient to talk to my coworker about God. You know, we get our lunch break, and it's only 30 minutes, and man, I don't want to talk about Jesus. Take up your cross. Take up your cross. As we take up our cross, you know what it means? It means loss. As we set aside the things that would be easier for us to hold on to. Because at the end of the day, Christ is worth it.